0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke's Sunday Forum on Martin Luther King Day Sunday. It is a wonderful occasion and a wonderful conversation we are about to have. My heart is beating fast because of these two guests, and we will uh, unpack why I'm so very excited. But let's go ahead and get them introduced, and then we'll put out the first set of questions and then we will be uh, soaring. So Dr. Gwendolyn Middlebrooks is one of my guests. She joined Ebenezer Baptist Church when she was 10, and she has been there these years. She has been involved in every aspect of the life of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And in addition to that, she was the babysitter for Dr. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King for their children. In addition to the fact that she was a tenured professor at Spelman in the education department uh, where she has her doctorate um, and she has much to share with us. And then also we have Dr. John Vaughn, the Reverend Dr. John Vaughn, who is the executive pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church He's a relative newcomer to Ebenezer. It really is a fine example of the forward thinking, the proactive thinking of Ebenezer Baptist because they hired him to be the executive pastor and he leads this place while um, their uh, reverend uh, who is now the Senator-elect for Georgia um, was running for election. So we'll fill in all the blanks about that. But now that I have very uh, kind of superficially introduced these two people, let's say hello to them. Dr. Gwendolyn Middlebrooks, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So good to be here. Thank Thank you. you.
0: And my brother, John Vaughn, welcome.
2: Good to be here, Ed, thanks. Thank you for the invitation. You
0: will, um, you will no doubt everybody pick up on the familiarity between John Vaughn and me. It's because we've been working together to get ready for our Lenten book study between Ebenezer and St. Luke's. We're gonna be studying caste. And he and I have been on many, many Zoom meetings. Not only about that, but uh, at an earlier meeting to talk about all the kinds of partnerships that we could form between Ebenezer and St. Luke's. And we're very excited. So, Do- Dr. Gwen, let's start with you. Um, tell us about this very exciting life you've had in the center of Spelman, in the center of public education, which is one of your passions, in the center of civil rights, in the center of Ebenezer Baptist Church, and in the center of the home life of the King family.
1: How did all this happen, ma'am? Well, um, I was a student at Spelman College and uh, working an odd job after Sunday school selling uh, the Atlanta Inquirer newspaper, a newspaper that the students had created because we thought we weren't giving, uh, being given fair uh, status in the press. Went to the president's house, his wife opened the door. After she bought a paper, she asked me if I wanted to babysit um, for a family Uh, that had just moved to Atlanta to earn extra money. I said, of course, she gave me the name. I said, oh, this is my my pastor's family. We met them this morning in church.
0: Amazing.
1: And I went over and met Coretta and the rest is history. Uh, uh, Reverend ML King Jr. and his brother, Reverend A.D. Williams King performed the ceremony when my husband and I got married. Oh my! So God. I was kind of close in there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. And he, so.
1: he, he was—he was constantly trying to tell me that I was too young to get married. I should wait a few years, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I had to prove to him. I celebrated my 60th anniversary on January 8th of this year, and I. It's all been about proving to him that we could stick. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was too young to get married. It was so interesting. That
0: is amazing.
1: We had a close relationship.
0: Congratulations on your anniversary. Thank you. I've got my 50th coming up and I thought I was a winded guy, but (laughs) I'm impressed. I really am. Um, So give us some sense of what it was like to be invited into the behind the scenes life of Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King and their children, their four children.
1: Uh, I wasn't there with Bonnie because I was there in the beginning when I started with uh, Marty and Yolanda and then Dexter was born. I I was not there when I was in and out of the house, just socially but not there to babysit with her. Um, It was very normal. And um, I say normal because uh, Coretta was the disciplinarian and the kids would run to Reverend King for protection that he always provided. It was very peaceful. What you saw in public was what he was at home, very gentle, very peaceful. I always smile when I get near Marty because Marty's demeanor is very much like his father. very kind, very quiet, very gracious, very respectful. That's the way his father was. And um, they were typical in so many ways, eating, um, dressing, going places and us being a part of that. And you know, when you're behind the scenes in that kind of a situation Sometimes you don't feel the political power and presence of the individual at all. It's like family. Yeah. yeah. And um, I would pick him up before he hired someone to drive him, and it may have been about my driving skills. I picked him up from the airport, shoveled him back and forth. I take Coretta, and I would pick it during those days, you could meet someone at the gate. And we'd walk through the Atlanta airport and people would be gathering all around him, they, they never saw me and he would be walking and graciously talking to anybody who wanted to talk um, with him. And I think about how unsafe that was, you know, we never gave it any thought at all. No. But he loved so many uh, things that ordinary people loved. And he appreciated, he loved people. He would take time to talk to all of my friends. Sometimes I had to get a ride. Uh, Mrs. King would call the campus because she needed me to help with something if guests were coming over and she didn't get advance notice. And I would get a friend to drive me over and that friend would sit in the living room. And as soon as he walked in the door and saw them, he would take a seat next to them to get all the information about them. You know, who are you and et cetera, et cetera. The first day I went there to work, I'll say, uh, I heard the door open as when I arrived, Coretta asked me if I would go down in the basement and iron some clothes for the children. She was about to take them somewhere. And while I was ironing, I heard the door open and I could hear the footsteps above. And he was saying, well, where is she? How long has she been here? And he, you could hear his feet running down the steps of the basement and it was an unfinished basement. He took a seat on the bottom steps, says, Who are you? And you go to Spelman, what is your major? And who are your parents? Do you have sisters and brothers? He just talked to everyone. Um, The image you saw of him as a friendly person, generous with his time was really who he was.
0: Oh my. Well, you know, I, um, I had a chance encounter with him when I was in college and I was flying back to Hartsfield and came to the luggage carol, and he was at the luggage carol with all the people who were in his entourage, and I screwed up my courage to go up to him and thank him for his work and get his autograph, and he was that kind, open, warm person that you're describing. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Just wonderful.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, I'm going to come back to you soon, but John Vaughn, God bless you. Tell us (laughs) how in the world did you get from New York City to Atlanta, (laughs) Georgia, because you were at a really famed seminary, Auburn, and tell us what you were doing there, and please, sir, how did you and Ebenezer get hooked up to form such a great
2: match? Well, interesting. I think it's a I think a couple of avenues. So one was um, when I was at Auburn as the executive vice president, Pastor Warnock was one of the senior fellows um, at Auburn. So this was 15 to 20 of what we have felt were some of the game-changing leaders, faith leaders in this country. And so he was a part of that group. And it started a conversation with my then boss at Auburn about, doing some kind of a conference related to ending mass incarceration. And so my boss came back and she said to me, you know, and asked me to take the lead on kind of working with Pastor Warnock, you know, around this. And so really I became the point person for Auburn, working with Ebenezer and then pulling in the temple and other kind of faith-based organizations to begin planning for this conference around ending mass incarceration, and then we learned pretty quickly that we wanted it to be more than the conference, but really launch this national effort around a faith-rooted response to mass incarceration. But through all that time, we started to work together um, on this on this initiative. But the back the backstory was that he and I have known each other since. He was at Union Seminary getting his doctorate, and, uh, and he was an associate minister at the Abyssinian Baptist Church. And I, at the time, was the on the staff, the ministerial staff of the Riverside Church in New York City. And so we met at that point. And also at the same time, we met through another avenue. My, my wife, Kim, uh, was in the MDiv program at, union and so she and pastor Warnock had also been friends so we started to so we started to know each other and so in many ways we've known each other a long time you know 20 plus years and so we've stayed in touch throughout the years and I was certainly one of the folks who who advocated for him to be part of the Auburn senior fellows group and then um, fast forward to about a year and a half ago we'd been working together through the ending mass incarceration work and knew that they were looking for an executive pastor. And and so we just started to chat a little bit about it. And at first we said, you know, maybe we ought to not go down this road because, you know, we've been friends for a long time. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to disrupt that. But one of the things that we learned through the ending mass incarceration work was that we worked well together and our gifts were different. You know, he is—he is the visionary. He is the theologian. I am—you know—I'm both kind of the the pastor and the administrator, and I'm the implementer. And so, I've oftentimes been in that number two position in support of the visionary leader. And so, this seemed to be a really good fit, I think, for us in terms of. The ways that our gifts complemented each other, and and as I said from the start, I'm not interested in being the senior pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church. That I'm not queuing up for that. I'm called to do this position to be the executive pastor, and it's been a great it's been a great experience. And you know we we've worked well together, and and the folks at Ebenezer have just been fabulous. You know, and what you see is this wonderful layer of leadership, like folks like Dr. Middlebrooks, but so many others who are, you know, who are giving of themselves to the church and who, you know, who both not just participate on committees, but also pick up tasks and move things along. And so I'm really excited about this moment in time, not just for Pastor Warnock, but I'm excited for Ebenezer. Like, I think this is, this is, Indeed, I think Ebenezer's time as a congregation to to really live into and to continue to live into what's really in its bones and in its DNAs, DNA, to really be a faith-rooted congregation that's committed to social justice.
0: The um, mass incarceration conference uh, was attended by my clergy colleagues and my wife and me and several other people from St. Luke's. Very well done, my friend, and we are joining you in that movement, and uh, we want to dedicate ourselves to helping you make it a movement, and with all of those other names you dropped, you and I could spend two hours talking about our our common (laughs) friends of Serene Jones and James Forbes Mm -hmm. and uh, James Cohn, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Dr. Mm -hmm. Gwendolyn, um, let's talk about what is it like to have as your pastor someone who has now been elected a United States Senator. What's going on in your heart and mind about that?
1: I knew you were going to ask me that question. And I was going to say, I don't know, and Pastor, <laughs> Reverend, Pastor Reverend Vaughn, because it's so new, it just happened. But as a congregation, remember I've been in Ebenezer since I was 10 years old. And um, the social justice piece, is nothing new to our congregation. And it's always been there. Uh, it It was Reverend Martin Luther King Senior's calling. I learned to vote. I heard the word vote for the first time in my life in that church, sitting in the congregation. He was talking about voting and how you have a voice through voting and you got a chance to vote when you were eighteen, and when you were ready, when you got to be eighteen, that's what you were supposed to. I couldn't wait to be eighteen so I could vote, because we had an obligation, not only to our local community but to the world, to do what we were supposed to do. To uh, Reverend King Senior would say, "Stand up and speak out," and the way you had a voice in government was to vote. So it's always been um, part of our reason to be, uh, by Christian education. Now I have to tell you this, when Reverend Warnock came and when Reverend Roberts came before him, I was hopeful that they wouldn't be constrained by the image and reputation of the church because I believe in change. And I thought it was wonderful. To have different people come. And I wanted them to have a chance to do what they wanted to do based on their skill set and their knowledge. And so I haven't been very prescriptive in my mind about what Reverend Warnock should do. You sort of say, I will go where the Lord will lead me. And so that's why I was thinking as you, I say, Oh, they're gonna ask me that question, and I'm gonna say, Reverend. Reverend Vaughn is in a better position than <laughs> I am to answer that
0: question. But, but Dr. Quinn, that's a perfect answer because what you said to me was the raison d'etre, the reason Ebenezer exists is to change the world in terms of civil rights and that you believe in change and that you are open to God's future for you and your parish. And every time you have a new leader, you want that new leader to express their calling.
1: Absolutely, from absolutely. And so, I tell you this, I think about you know how God led me. During the time I lived as a young person, the only place you had to go for recreation was the church and the YMCA or YWCA. And if you miss church, if you miss church at Ebenezer, you miss getting all the pertinent information. Uh, Wheat Street, Baptist Church, Big Bethel, Liberty, Ebenezer. that, that was I don't know if the, I don't know if the ministers got together and decided what information they would give out on Sunday. but I know one thing, all the children from the neighborhood schools were there and we were in church getting all of the information and we talked about it all week. We knew what the adults knew. Uh, All of those kinds of things uh, were powerful educational opportunities, and I don't know if it was clearly defined in those days that that was the purpose of the church, but it was like a guiding light for your lives as as Negro-colored African-American people, and that's where you were on Sunday. I see.
0: I hear you, and I feel you. That's so exciting. That really is. Well, let's begin to gradually talk about Dr. King. It is Martin Luther King Sunday. And I want to say a little bit more, uh, I wanna ask you a little bit more about the person. And then what I want to do is get into the principles because the great thing about the website for Dr. King is you have the Kingian principles And I want us to move toward talking about what is the essence of the Kingian principles and how they nurture you two people as responsible human beings in the world, because that's what we need right now. We need responsible citizens of the world, and I am convinced that Dr. King's spirit and principles can get us there. So Dr. Gwen, back to you. Can we talk a little bit about how you talk about the essence of Dr. King?
1: Uh, I think the essence is that selfless love that he always talked about. He had to find a way to love everybody and uh, not respond with anger. And I've learned through the years that Uh, it's not easy for some people to be nonviolent. Um, It's really something, you know, let me say some people are born nonviolent. I, I have no idea, but I do know that there are times when you need to practice what you're preaching and you need to go through training. We did that before we were involved in the student movement, but I reach for Howard Thurman when I talk about identifying self. You got to know who you are. Um, when you get to know who you are, and he and Reverend King Sr. and Jr. knew who they were, uh, you can be comfortable with what you preach and what you say, because you really believe it. Um, and he, he knew who he was and love was a part of that. That's selfless love, finding a way to love people who are mistreating you. And there are a lot of people from different walks of life who will do that. And um, you, you practice it, you work on it, it's reflected in all you say and all you do. And um, it's not that you are cowardly, but it's that you find a way to help a person understand that what he or she is doing is wrong and but though you're doing it I'm going to love you anyway. Education um, has been my profession and I understand that sometimes people do wrong things because they don't really understand how to do right and so you're obligated not to dislike them you dislike what they do but as a person you love them and try to educate them so they will make better choices. And as we know with our current leader, our national leader, that's sometimes very difficult, but you don't stop trying.
0: You never stop Mm -hmm. trying. And that's what Dr. King
1: taught us. Thank you so much. It's a lifelong commitment. You don't stop trying. Yes. And you see, you meet challenges in your family life, in your profession, in your church, there are, you meet challenges because you meet people, you people are as human beings are often changing. And when they present you with a challenge, it's an opportunity for you to practice what you preach.
0: Indeed, indeed. If, if indeed.
1: you really believe it, <laughs> this brother has done something that has made me feel very uncomfortable. This is an opportunity for me to decide, do I dislike him or just dislike what he has done? And so you begin, it becomes automatic after a while. You begin to understand that, yes, I am capable of disliking what this person did, but I don't dislike this person because this person is another human being, a child of God. And I've got to find a way. And when I can take a step farther, um in the scheme of things, if the opportunity presents itself, I'll try to educate him do something to help him become a better person and to come where I am.
0: Oh, Dr. Gwen, you are making me breathe so deeply. I am just so inspired by what you're saying. Um, I wanna come back to you in just a second. And I wanna unpack what you said about Dr. Thurman. Now, Dr. Thurman has become a hero of ours at St. Luke's. I inherited St. Luke's as interim rector when we were, cho- we were reading uh, The Cross and the Lenting Tree by James Cone, and then we chose as our next book, last Lent, uh, Dr. Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And, and now we're choosing to cast. So I wanna come back to you about that, but you breathe and let me go back to Pastor Vaughn. John, what do you think is the essence of Dr. King's teaching?
2: I think, I mean, I, I loved what I was amen to what Dr. Middlebrook's.
0: Amen. Shared.
2: amen. <clears throat> but I was thinking about um, I think what doesn't get talked about as much is courage. But I would say courage, courage from courage in being able to to articulate issues and talk about things that folks are really not comfortable talking about. So if you really look at the latter part of his ministry, you know his his taking on the poor people campaign was a was a really courageous act. Some would argue that what really got him killed was when he started to organize poor white people, when you were really beginning to cross those racial boundaries. Um, I also think the courage of and you know, having been at Riverside Church, you know, we know we knew very well the importance of that significant speech where he talked about the the interconnectedness of militarism, poverty, and racism. That was not a popular thing to say. He could have just stayed right on his regular path that he was on, but the courage to be able to name to name that interconnectedness into into and to show the ways in which they are, the ways in which they were, and I would dare say even the ways they stay still are interconnected. Um, and I did the courage at those moments, you know, that, and it cost him. It cost him some relationships. It cost him, um, you know, I mean, the New York Times the following day basically, you know, basically uh, lambasted him, you know, over it and so but i think it takes courage to it takes courage to really be the person of your convictions that indeed you are you are stepping forward and where you feel god is leading you and, and 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 what you feel god is putting upon your heart and god is making clear to you you know being prophetic does not make you popular you know in the long run you know but being prophetic is um if you really are if we are true to if we're true to what it means to be Christians and if we're true to following Christ then there are going to be moments when we have to we have to speak on the side of that unconditional love that Dr. Middlebrook's really talked about and and there and it is a principle of courage that i think is really that's very important i think for us
0: Thank you. I, I've n- I've never heard someone lead an answer like uh, uh, to that question with the word Absolutely. courage. Thank you very much. Because, Absolutely Oh, it's so true, right, Dr. Bendlebrooks?
1: But I, I, was, it, I want to ask I was you, gonna say I was gonna I, say before you asked that that, you know he was really courageous because see. Some people in the world wanted to typecast him as a minister. Stay in your place. You' just leading these people who are trying to uh, integrate a few lunch counters and you know, stay in your lane, stay as they say in, in current in the current culture of the young. Um, and he had the courage to be global in his perspective, mm-hmm. to try to tie the ends together to say, it's not just this. There are other things that underpin this. That, that, that's, that's the piece. And the, But then people want him to not do that. You know, that that's not your business. Just keep uh, organizing people to sit on buses and places like this. And he was saying, there is more of this. You need to be global in your thinking and to understand what's going on nationally and internationally, and how the pieces fit, that we can't be comfortable over here if these people are starving over there. Uh, We are fighting for educational opportunities, professional opportunities, and people are hungry. So we have to answer the call.
0: And we live in a world-
1: You can't think if you're hungry.
0: Right. And we live in a world house, he said. I love that. You live in a world house, not just a one-nation house. Just amazing. Uh, Dr. Middlebrooks, go back. I want to test a thesis or theory with you that a lot of that courage came from what you said earlier, a point you made earlier, that he had this identity of self. Can you unpack that a little bit more, that Dr. Thurman concept of you have to know your genuine self?
1: Um, A man by the name of uh, Lawrence Carter, who is the Dean of the School of Education, uh, uh, he's he's the college minister at uh, Morehouse College, wrote a piece where he traced how uh, Martin Luther King became Aligned with the principles of Gandhi, how that single thread. Howard Thurman is the person who actually brought the idea to the United States, to Howard University when he was teaching there. Went with, I understand, a delegation of people to India to look at the educational system while they heard about Gandhi, had a meeting with him, and was so excited about his teachings until we need to return. Howard University, uh, talking about it. Incidentally, Benjamin Elijah Mays was teaching there at the time. It's amazing how the pieces fit. And uh, the, the 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 president wanted him to tell the faculty about it, and he did. And then um, the story goes. After, uh, incidentally, uh, the man who founded CORE was also a piece of that puzzle and left and founded CORE. Benjamin Elijah Elijah Mays, um, Reverend Sam, um, the name is escaping me now, Williams, I think, left and both went to Morehouse to teach before Benjamin E. Mays became president. And the philosophy teacher of Martin Luther King was Reverend William, Sam Williams, mm-hmm. who talked about the teachings of Gandhi and nonviolence in philosophy class when Martin Luther King was a student there. I mean, it's just amazing how that single thread from Howard Thurman's connections with Gandhi came into the life of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, amazing. And of course, the rest is history. So if you look at what he was teaching, he says, you need to understand who you are before you decide who will go with you. Mm -hmm. You make decisions, you can't help other people become if you don't know who you are. It's very important. And as I interacted with him, you know, some people uh, we say are plastic, you know, they, they shared their personalities based on the groups they are with. But I watched him in the church. I watched him at home. I've seen him dressing to get rid It's always the same in his attitude toward people, always took time for people, always wanted to see people, always wanted to watch people. When they told me he had been shot looking out over that balcony, I knew. The many nights I saw him when I was upstairs reading to the children, I'd hear the door open and I'd go downstairs and you could see from the steps, the front door would be open. He would be standing on the porch in the dark, leaning over the balcony with his hands on the balcony, just looking. And I would think how dangerous it was, but you couldn't tell him that because, and I think about that when I see the, words on his tomb, free at last, free at last, because his popularity and his work constrained him. Uh, It was difficult to protect him physically, but there was a freedom he enjoyed when no one was looking, he'd stray away and stand by himself. Mm -hmm. And I thought about him on that balcony because I saw him do that so many times. But if you talked with him about it, and I did one time, I said something to him about coming into a room before I closed the draperies. He said, oh, I can't be worried about that. The back of the house was to an alley. He said, when my time comes, I'll go. I can't worry about that. I can't live worried about that. He said, when my day comes, I could just walk down the steps of the basement and break my neck and die. (laughs) And he laughed about it, which was true. So you would leave him alone because he was trying to enjoy life, but he definitely knew who he was. And that was the only way he could help other people. He had to be, not only know who he was, he had to be comfortable with who he was. Yeah,
0: you you two are teaching me so much. I'm so grateful. Uh, Pastor John, will you talk about you and Dr. King? How did you get in touch with him? How did he get in touch with your soul as a young person?
2: Well, it's interesting. Um, It even predates me. Um, So what I mean is, uh, so my, my parents met in graduate school in Massachusetts. My mother was getting her PhD in psychology from Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. And my dad was getting his Ph.D. in physics at Boston University, and so my uh, so my father mm-hmm. used to play ping pong with Dr. King when he was uh, at Boston University. So it goes. <laughs> so it goes back even that far, even before I, uh, even before him. Um, but I, I will say more seriously that you know I think for me it's. Um, that notion of what does it really mean to love everybody unconditionally like that that and i would say it really coincided also with my own call to ministry i i went to seminary straight out of college i went to the pacific school of religion in berkeley california and i actually went to seminary not Actually, thinking I had a call to ministry, but of course God had other plans. And about halfway through, God said, "No, you got a call, and it's, it's going to look like this." But I think in in that this, the, the sermon around call, I I began to to begin to understand Dr. King in kind of new and different ways than he was than I than I knew growing up, or than he was taught in school, and. But that notion that could not really let me go, it kind of you know, goes back to what Dr. Middlebrooks was talking about is, so what does it actually mean to love everybody? And not just in a very familial way, not just even in a community way, but what does that mean in society? You know, to love everybody that one, everybody as one of God's children. And, and that is, that is challenging. Like it is very, what does it mean to love right now the president of the United States who who is not necessarily acting in my best interest, you know, in this, um, at least how I experience it, and in terms of what he's facilitating. Um, and, and I think, that, but so really asking ourselves those hard questions, and then what does that then mean? for me in terms of how then do I need to act in the world? How do I need to be in the world? And so it's, it is, you know, so they were words and experiences that begin to, that began to really draw the, draw the individual and the societal together in a more interconnected way for me. And I think were important as I started to, as I started to claim my own sense of call to to ministry. I would say the other the other part, and I was very fortunate. I my first call out of seminary was at the Riverside Church in New York City, huh. and huh. so I worked for a year when William Sloan Coffin was a senior minister before Amazing. going to head a faith based organizing effort in East Harlem in the eighties, and and I also then you know began to, and that's actually when I got to. Really know and understand the Beyond Vietnam speech, you know that integration and really looking at that interconnectedness, because because that because that's not what's taught. When I was growing up, that you didn't, I didn't even know it existed until I sort of heard about it in seminary. But I didn't. I really began to understand that when I was at Riverside for that first time, and so it's 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 interesting it's interesting in this holiday, the, you know, both the sanitized version of the ways that folks want to talk about and remember Dr. King, but, you know, the, the, the grittiness of, so what, what does it actually mean to really love everybody? You know, that, that, that he lived out clearly in his interpersonal life, but also in his, in his community, in his ministry. And, That, to me, is the, you know, if there's no other takeaway, I think, for people this weekend, it's to really be challenged by that, and not just, you know, live in the basket of, oh, isn't it great if we all live together? Isn't it just great for us to have a dream? And all of that is wonderful, but the nitty-gritty of, um you know, be you know, what does it really mean to love and care about everyone—the folks that you like and the folks you don't like, the so folks that you know you're excited about, and the ones that make your skin crawl—like all of that together, to me is is part of what I what I have felt, kind of, you know, the my my engagement with Dr. King has has did for me early on.
0: Thanks for bringing us back to that. That is so powerful, Pastor John. Um, I, I love the Beyond Vietnam speech um, and I reread it every year. What are the other two or three either speeches, sermons or books, John, that you return to as, as, as ways of kind of just reminding you of how courageous, how amazingly thoughtful Dr. King was?
2: Well, I think that you know one of them is the letter from a Birmingham jail, and I do think that notion of um, why why we can't wait, and and I'm and and it and it's a nice challenge for me because I you know I you know I will you know try to be patient and try to kind of go through the process that needs to be gone through, but sometimes there are these moments that challenges. As to why we can't wait, why we have to take it on now, um, and and so I think uh, because sometimes waiting is a way of not dealing with things, and and so I think that's that's what the letter for the Birmingham Jail does is it's it's it it challenges us to say look we're going to have to deal with this so whether you like it or not it's it has to be dealt with. So I think the letter from the Birmingham Jail has always been um, has always been significant for me. Um, And then I think the you know where do we go from here? Community or chaos? You know, which I think is that it's you know there's there's a choice to be made. And and these things don't happen just because we say it's going to happen. It happens with intentionality. It happens with work. It happens with community building. Um, It happens because we lean into it. And we lean into the, you know, the, sometimes the discomfort of building and the tensions of building relationships, as well as the joy, you know, that comes with that too. Thank you.
0: Dr. Middlebrooks, what are your favorite sermons? What, are your fa- what do you keep re- returning to when you want to commune with Dr. King and what he
1: meant? I haven't thought of a favorite one except, and I can't remember it. I mean, I can't identify it. Um, when he was, he was talking about war, poverty, uh, and racism. Yes. So I always struggle with the word poverty and I, I want to take us astray here, but see, I think I'm the person I am because I lived in poverty, but I wasn't poor.
0: I understand.
1: Um, And so when people, I know the problems around poverty are political and I I respect that and I understand it. But you see, if I hadn't been a poor, struggling college student trying to sell papers, I never would have gotten the opportunity to work with the King family. I think about all of the advantages I had over my friends whose parents drove them to school in cars and things that they didn't have because I was working. And um, so I've in years struggled with that word poverty because it was my mother who first began to teach me, I would say, oh, we just, we are so poor. She would say, you're not poor. You're rich in so many ways. You're rich in so many ways. God has given you so much. And I would roll my eyes and say, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know what? I was sitting in Ebenezer Baptist Church as always. And Reverend King Sr. was pounding his fist on the podium, shouting at the congregation because the clergy had gotten, black clergy had gotten together and appealed to Easter seal people to open a camp for Negro children who had multiple handicaps. They always had one for white children, but they didn't have one for Negro children. And they opened it at Mosley Park. And he was upset because he said, no Negro volunteers went to help those children. They had gotten it open, had been operating a week. Nobody was there. So that Monday morning after church, I took some of my babysitting money and I rode the bus over there. Changed my life. They assigned me to a little boy named John who was six years old. I'll try to tell the story briefly. He had multiple handicaps. Couldn't stay in his wheelchair unless he was tied to the chair. Could not speak, he made sounds. I took him in the water to swim. These children had never been into a swimming pool. They needed one volunteer for every child because they had multiple handicaps. I never shall forget after swimming, he was dressed. And I was told to feed him his lunch and they gave me a big rubber spoon. And the lady showed me how I had to scoop that food up with that spoon, put it in his mouth. Then I had to take my other hand and hold his lips together when I pulled that spoon out while he chewed that food because he had such poor muscle coordination until he couldn't close his mouth and the food would fall out of his mouth and he couldn't get nourishment in his body. That evening, I was riding the bus home. I had to ride the bus and transfer. and They didn't realize it, but I was crying. And That lady sitting next to me said, little girl, why are you crying? Life can't be that bad. You can't be that unhappy. And I said, I'm not crying because I'm unhappy. I'm crying because I'm happy. I realized Mm -hmm. I had so many gifts. I could dress myself. I could walk. I could talk. I could close my mouth. And I was living in a housing project. My mother was working for $5 a day in bus fare and I felt so rich and so grateful. And so out of my connection with the church, I stumbled into that experience and I've always been proud of the fact that, you know, I've been rich in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And so I struggle with that word poverty, but as it is technically and legally defined, I understand it. But it has been um, a ladder for me to the top because it helped me identify who I was and appreciate who I was.
0: Mm. Uh, mm. Dr. About
1: that. So when he talked about that, even though I appreciated what he had to say, I was always thinking, well, poverty isn't so bad. Because <laughs> you can be in poverty but not be poor. <laughs>
0: That's true. I do love the fact that you think through sermons rather than <laughs> saying, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. You've
1: right. always
0: thought through every sermon you've ever heard, I'm sure.
1: Oh, and I listened to him intently. It's, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And that's why I believe in church and Sunday school for children. Right. Because it's amazing what you hear when yeah. you're there. And I felt better when I was in church because I was hearing what the adults heard.
0: Right. I love it. You love know, it. it's just
1: it. very, very interesting about all those things. Um, well, really, you know,
0: we, we have to bring this to a close. Unfortunately, it's felt like five minutes, but I do, I do want to thank you, Dr. Vindelbrooks, about saying uh, what you said earlier about when you come into contact, with someone who's very different and, and disagrees with you and uh, is really not doing it right. This is an opportunity for you yes. to express the truth by which you live. Oh, I, and I hear that beautiful song and my living shall not be in vain.
1: Yes.
0: Oh my goodness. You two have just, uh, my, my heart, is just twice the size it was when we started talking 45 minutes ago. You all are so inspiring. And thank you very much for opening and bringing a new realization uh, to my life about Dr. King. Do either of you have, or both of you have any kind of concluding point you want to make before we have to say goodbye?
1: Quickly, one of the things I think that escapes us a lot of time is the point of identity. I happened to look at my children's passports one day, they were born four and six years apart. One was listed as colored, one was listed as Negro and the other one was listed as African-American. And I thought that was very interesting, who identifies us? And sometimes when we talk about knowing who we are and where we're going before we can help other people, always been struck by that it's very interesting if you really look at demographics you will see somebody was naming our group of people every so many years yes yes and who are we really and so we went back to the point we need to self-identify before we can help others and be comfortable with who we are
0: i love that thanks for re-emphasizing that Pastor Vaughn, do you have a concluding word or point you want to make?
2: You don't Well, I'm really excited about you know being at Ebenezer at this particular time, at this you know in this particular place, and you know I think folks like Dr. Middlebrooks and others who both carry the stories, the history, and it's it's interesting today. Earlier, I was talking with some folks from Georgia state about, you know, the possibility of partnering around some of our history and archiving work. And I was just reminded, you know, once again, of how important it is for us as a congregation. And I think, but, but, but as, as communities of faith to tell those stories, um, to, because they don't oftentimes get told and, and that, and, and that they really are, the foundation on which we build the action of today and tomorrow. And so I'm, I'm grateful to be in this place. I'm grateful to have opportunities to, to connect with such folks like Dr. Middlebrooks and many of the other great leaders that are present at Ebenezer. And I'm looking forward to kind of this next, what God is doing in our midst, both as a congregation in our relationships with congregations like St. Luke's um, and I think as people of faith, because I, I believe God God is about transformation, and I'm, I'm eager to see the, what, what God, God is up to this year.
0: Thank you. What an important point. Well, to both of you, I want to kind of say, this is not going to be very humble on my part, but I don't do humility very well. On behalf of the world, <laughs> I want to thank you too <laughs> for doing what you do to make Ebenezer Baptist Church the resource for justice and peace and global citizenship and moving into the future, and also being, you all are a global institution. Thank you very much for all you've done, Dr. Middlebrooks, making that happen. Thank you, Pastor Vaughn, for coming and bringing all your gifts to this. We are with you and we applaud you and we are grateful for you. Thank you. Thank
1: Thank you, you. thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Mm It's been
0: a thrill. And thank you everybody who watched. We're so very glad you've been with us for Sunday forums at St. Luke's Church. We will have more inspiring people in the future, but today give thanks for Dr. King read something he wrote. Think about your self-identity. Think about loving people unconditionally. Think about having courage. Think about being a global citizen. Think about what these, this brother and this sister have taught us. We are so very glad you were with us. Thank you very much. Have a great Sunday. Bye-bye.